Hello, everyone. This is Tommy at World at War Comics. Thank you for joining us today. Before we get into this next interview, please give us a like, give us a subscribe. It helps out the channel and make sure that you get all the news of World at War Comics and all the interviews that we've been doing. All right, without further ado, next up is Daniel Kraus. He is the writer and creator of Trojan. That is a new four-part series by AWA that actually finished in March. Incredible comic. You definitely want to check it out. In fact, the trade comes out next week. That would be June 28th. So you could pick up the trade if you want to read the whole story at once. Um, but man, we had an amazing interview. We talked about his history as a novelist and how that transitioned into comic books, his love for horror, um, everything in between. He also has a new novel coming out called Whalefall that you don't want to miss. That actually comes out in August. So without further ado, here's Daniel and I. Hope you enjoy. Well, hello, everyone. We have a special guest today, Daniel Krause. Daniel, thanks for joining the World at War Comics podcast. It's great to have you. Hey, thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, yeah. So I thought we would just kind of dig in, man. Uh, you know, I, I did a little research. I found out that you really didn't grow up with comic books, which is crazy because the, the ones that I've read have been awesome that you have written. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, I don't really have a good explanation for it. Um, yeah. I don't recall, you know, I grew up in a small town in yeah. Iowa. So, I mean, I guess that's probably part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, like there weren't, there was, there was a kind of sort of bookstore. It was kind of had books and magazines and gifts and Hallmark cards and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I, I certainly spent a lot, a lot of time there. Um but I, I just don't recall there being comic books. And yeah. when I think about my friends when I was a kid, I don't recall them really having comic books. So yeah. I'm guessing some of them did, but for whatever reason, they just weren't available to me. Right, um, I don't right. think my library had them. Um, so it was just this weird thing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I would have enjoyed them had I had the chance, but um, <laughs> they just weren't anywhere. They weren't yeah. anywhere. Me. So I don't have, you know, I don't have any of the, nostalgia yeah. for um, comics that most people my age do. Um, mm -hmm. They just weren't part of my uh, growing up. And, uh, you know, I really wasn't until I started writing them really that I uh, just begun to, and I'm still only in that, that exploration is in its infancy, really um, going back and trying to read some, you know, yeah. I certainly, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, started reading uh, the uh, occasional graphic novel. Uh -huh. But my education is way, way behind. <laughs> Are there any uh, graphic novels that you have read in the last 10, 15 years that have been pretty amazing to you? that have had an impact on you? Well, right now I'm working my way through Ultimate Swamp Thing. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh and i'm really being blown away by that <laughs> this is the alan moore swamp thing alan uh, moore yeah that's and, such an amazing uh, writer just really it it makes me feel lazy you know like <laughs> it makes me feel like i really need to to think harder and deeper about what's possible in the form and you know like i i really tried with my first comic the autumnal to to understand comics mm -hmm. in a comic form yeah. Uh, and I know you have to sort of understand the rules before you can break them, but, but Moore's stuff definitely makes me want to break them more often <laughs> because 
what he's was doing in those comics is yeah. uh something i can certainly only aspire to at this point yeah yeah no for sure so you know not growing up with comics i mean you have this uh this passion for horror what did you read growing up that kind of helped produce this passion for horror that you have today well you know <clears throat> as a kid i don't think i read too much um uh, of anything we would recognize i think as a little kid it was mostly um uh nonfiction, you know like yeah. just like random nonfiction books you get from the library called ghosts or yeah. monsters <laughs> or something like i was i was a big fan of those kind of things yeah. um i think it was mostly movies for yeah. me as a kid um i don't i don't really recall reading a lot of kids books i'm sure yeah. i must have but i don't yeah. recall reading like any of the classic sort of middle grade or young adult books. Those, those sort of passed me by too. Yeah. But I saw a lot of movies. I saw, you know, from a very, very young age, five or six, I always say, and that's my closest estimation. I was watching um, Night Living Dead with my mom. Every time it was on, I was yeah. watching Twilight Zone with her once a week. Uh. <laughs> uh, so those, those two things in particular were, were very important to me. Yeah. And really started a love of, of horror, although I think I wouldn't say it was always love. It was I yeah. went through peaks and valleys growing up of like loving horror and then being really scared of it and coming mm -hmm. back to it. Um, but but it was always an interest. Like even when it scared me, I was very intrigued by yeah. why why did it scare me and yeah. uh, so so an, an investment and an interest in horror was there from the start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. How about like Halloween, Freddy Krueger's? Did you ever get into those yeah. and have an impact on you? I know they yeah, did I, me, man. I didn't sleep for a while after watching some of those. Yeah, I mean, I have, you know, like a lot of people like me, I I can I can remember vividly, you know, a half dozen times I saw movies and just scared me so bad yeah. and uh, to the point of being like physically sick. And then and the movies that I remember it being are always just like random movies that don't make sense. Like, I don't know why they scared me so bad. Like I remember being really freaked out by the end of the stuff. I don't know if you've seen this stuff. No, I haven't seen that or, one. Oh, it's great. Or Halloween three. I remember that really upset me as a kid, just these kind of like movies that aren't really all that scary, but yeah. something, something about them bothered me at the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I could definitely relate to that. I remember, I don't know if it's Freddy Krueger number one where he's walking through the alley and his arms kind of stretch out and he scrapes his nails across the, the wall. For whatever reason, I have yeah. that burned into my mind, even to this day. And that was, what, 35, 40 years ago when I watched yeah. it. So. I tend to overlook in interviews the importance of Night Living Dead. I'm sorry. Uh, I always note that. Uh, Nightmare yeah, on yeah. Street. Um, I always sort of forget that how important... Um, nightmare on elm street was to me like yeah I, I think i clued into it around uh nightmare on street three mm -hmm. and that's when I, I i mean i'm thinking maybe i was in fifth grade it's sixth yeah. grade i mean it was somewhere in that vein somewhere in that general area yeah but i saw that and really got obsessed with it and that's when you know um i i wasn't like a lifetime you know reader of fangoria or anything just because it was it was hard to find yeah. But that's like when I bought whatever Fangoria, you know, maybe I, maybe I bought 10 issues over a couple of years or something. Yeah. Um, but and I remember I wrote one of my first like pieces of fiction of any length was a 
was essentially what we would now call fan fiction. Yeah. Uh, that was at the time it was a, uh, it would have been nightmare on Elm street four. So I wrote, I wrote a book, which was really a notebook length, but however long a standard like school notebook is a spiral. That's awesome. Book. That's awesome. Um, and I wrote a nightmare on Elm street and, uh, and I, and the funny thing is, I, when I was in uh, Pittsburgh this past weekend, uh -huh. they have this th these uh, the the country's biggest horror archives. Um, uh -huh. That began they, it began with the uh, archives of George Romero, and yeah. I was this I was the second person after George Romero to donate their archives to this university. How cool! And um, so all my papers are housed there. So. Yeah. Um, they have all my juvenilia. They have my early novel drafts, all that kind of stuff. And when I was there, they told me um, last year the uh, the family of Wes Craven came through, and they showed them my my uh, Nightmare on Elm Street uh, fan fiction <laughs> novel. <laughs> and they How got cool a is that? real kick out of that. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. So. You know, you, you talked about uh, George Romero. I mean, I think the the Night of the Living Dead and the Dawn of the Dead and on and on and on had a huge impact on you as well. Can you kind of talk about uh, how much he meant to you? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it really was mostly Night of the Living Dead. And then later on, as I got older, it was everything he did. Right, but, yeah. um, for the first you know, from age five to age 15, let's say, mm -hmm. it was really Night of the Living Dead um, that really got me interested in in uh, horror, but also just interested in movies and art and everything. Absolutely. Um, you know, famously, there was a copyright issue with Night of the Living Dead, so everyone could screen it. So, yeah. um, you know, George and his filmmaker uh, group missed out on millions, but the trade-off was that... Um, it could be screened anywhere at any time for free. And so it was on TV constantly. And so I saw it, I've probably seen it 300 times, you know, I just, I'm, and I'm not someone who is a obsessive watcher of things. Like uh -huh. I don't, I don't read books over again by, by in general, I don't watch movies many times in general. I watch them once and, you know, move on. But the big exception is Night Living Dead. I just, I really and truly am. It is my only obsession. Uh, and I, I just, I watch it. I just can't, it's, it's almost not even a movie to me. It, I, I think it's more like an album, you know, yeah. like it's like music that, that yeah. sort of is ingrained in your head and your heart and just yeah. sort of, uh, is everywhere inside of you. Um, so really his movies then as I got older and started to watch, uh, more of them, yeah. um, his movies really guided certainly my artistic life and a lot of my just real life. And kind of uh, my thoughts on the world and my uh, philosophies. And um, I became a real student of his work. Um, and he, he is, you know, he remains my favorite artist of any uh, media, really. Yeah, yeah. It seems like because of that issue around the trademark, a lot of people were influenced uh, by him. Because I, I was reading, you know, um, Robert Kirkman also... Um, the Walking Dead said mm -hmm. that George Romero had a huge influence. In fact, um, in some of the later episodes, some of the the zombies in his TV show, he he built after George Romero. So I, I feel like there's a lot of folks just like you that have had 
you know, been impacted in a large way by um, his creation. Yeah, absolutely. So, so to end up working with him at the very, you know, very end of his career was, you know, a huge deal because yeah. it was a, beyond a dream come true, really. So how did that even come about? Um, because I believe that he had passed, was it 2017? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And so it was his widow that came to you to ask you to, to kind of finish off the series. Yeah. So how that worked out was um, his Ramiro's manager mm -hmm. um, knew, knew me and we had, uh, I'm trying, let me uh, think how this. How yeah. Yeah. Kind of events here. Um, I met George just once. Uh-huh. And I, I met him and his manager once and um we had drinks. We didn't we didn't talk business really. It was just a nice social gathering. Um but his manager knew what a uh obsessive I was about his work and mm -hmm. importantly to them, not just Night of the Living Dead, but all of his films. Yeah. Um and not just his zombie films, but all of his obscure works. Um and I was also at, at that point I had done two collaborations with Guillermo del Toro that had been successful. So um, I think when George died in 2017, uh, uh, it was only about a month before um, his manager and Romero's wife contacted me. Um, and I hadn't been in touch with uh, his manager for 10 years, you know, um, but he remembered how much I loved him and understood him. And I had also done these collaborations um, that had been successful. And that's just me kind of theorizing. I don't know if that worked into yeah. it at all, but it seems logical. I would think so, yeah. Um, and they asked me, you know, they said, listen, George, I've been working on this epic zombie novel for uh, years, and uh, he, he died before he could finish it. Um, mm. And it really was a, a novel in pieces. He's written, he had written a lot of pages, but they were all kind of all over the place. And yeah. uh, he had taken like two attempts at the novel. And, so there was this wealth of work that was also kind of a mess though. Mm. Um, and so they asked if I would like to take, take a stab at finishing it. And it was just to this day, and I don't, it'll never be surpassed really. It's just the greatest honor of my career yeah. in life maybe to, to have this opportunity because the book really kind of finishes his zombie cycle. And yeah. so to, to be a part of the, of ending the thing that was like my origin story is just yeah. it's just incredible like i <laughs> i still can't really believe it happened um so i dropped everything and worked on that for a couple of years yeah i mean when i when i read that i just thought i mean how fortunate right i mean i, I think a lot of people have been influenced by a lot of people but to be able to kind of close that loop on that person's career on their behalf and you were so influenced by them. I just thought that was an amazing story that they would reach out to you and ask you to do that. And that's just incredible. I mean, that's dream yeah, it, right there, right? It really is. <laughs> it really is. Even even talking about it now, I can. It seems Im impossible to believe. <laughs> well, that's awesome, man. Well, I mean, so you get done with that. I think your your first forte into an actual like graphic novel was it, um, autumnal? Yeah, the autumnal. Um, autumnal sorry yeah it's, yeah it's, it's a challenge for many people to say so <laughs> don't feel bad thank you yes. I appreciate <laughs> yeah that was my first uh comic yeah uh, so that was i mean i don't even know when that came out i think i think the issues started coming out 2020 i think yeah 2020 is what i saw yeah yeah 
So one, one of the things that I read, and I don't know if all writers do this, but one of the things that you mentioned is uh, you don't understand how someone could just write like an issue. Like if you know it's a six part issue, how do you just mm -hmm. write one issue and not write the whole story and then break it out in six issues? Can you kind of walk through your process as a writer? And, and yeah. maybe that's one of those things you made a comment at the beginning of the interview is that, uh, you know, I don't want to take words out of your mouth, but about breaking how certain things are done in comics. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if that isn't part of that, right? Is you're, you're kind of doing things I think differently than most writers do. They do kind of look at each episode or each comic or each issue. And then they kind of write that issue and then see where that falls for the next issue. But you like to write the whole thing as a novelist, right? Uh, yeah. As a novelist, that's how I work. You know, yeah. you know, you don't turn in a chapter and publish the chapter, you know, you, right, you, right. you write the whole thing <laughs> and publish the book. Uh, so it didn't make any sense to me really to do it a different way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And as I was working on the autumnal and then, you know, other comics I've done since, uh, yeah, I sit down and I write the whole thing from front to back and I don't, I don't fully understand doing it the, in any other way because you know, I would come up with things in issues seven or eight of the autumnal that would would change things. Yeah. And I'd be like, that's a fantastic idea. I need to retrofit that into the other issues, just like I would in a novel. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what I think it's part of why they they work because yeah. there are seeds that are planted that pay off so well because you're able to see the whole picture. Yeah. Um, I have since spoken to plenty of comic writers who work in the traditional way where it's sort of issue by issue yeah um and they've told me stories about comic writers who were you know going issue by issue and painted themselves into into pretty extreme corners because they didn't plan out yeah um, but then that forced them to be to come up with really creative ways to get themselves out of trouble <laughs> yeah. uh and i that does intrigue me like i i do i do like to set up creative problems for myself to force yeah. myself to you know work in unexpected ways so i would like to try that at some point you know that traditional way and i understand that most people are doing that uh just because of time constraints like yeah. it, you know a lot of comic writers are, are working on many comics at once and mm -hmm. uh it just doesn't fit into their schedule i guess to do all the issues at at once or in, in major chunks of like major arcs anyway yeah. Um, so I'll, I'm going to try that at some point, but, uh, <laughs> it sounds I, I stressful think, though, huh? it just, it sounds like a lot of missed opportunities to me. Although I, I like the idea of mm -hmm. the, the creative problem solving element. Yeah. I feel like I, I am also doing that by nature mm -hmm. when, I, when I'm writing, uh, in my way. And yeah. it's just like, I don't, I don't want other, I don't want readers to have to suffer through my, uh, to have a, a, a lesser book because I'm <laughs> I'm experimenting with uh, methods, right, uh, right. But so I think generally I will stick with this method. Like yeah. I like getting my it head works. deep in something. Yeah, yeah, it works for you for sure, absolutely. So, what are the biggest differences? Because you, you you are a novelist, um, but in writing comic books, right, a portion of the the story really comes from the artist. So there's this balance between you as the writer telling the story and then the artist kind of piggybacking off of that and helping to tell some of that story in a visual way. Um, is that a hard transition as someone who is more of a novelist or do you, is there something attractive to the, 
the the graphic novel side of it to where you can mm -hmm. have that partner that can help you tell that story? Um, I wouldn't say it was a difficult transition for me. And now I've heard horror stories of, you know, acclaimed novelists who who uh, got into comics and uh, just didn't get it. And yeah. it, it was a train wreck. Like I've, I've heard those stories. Yeah. Uh, for whatever reason for me, it, it came naturally. Um, yeah. And I really enjoyed it. Like it was, it was a good palate cleanser from the novels because it, it, it comics just, they're, they exercise a different part of the brain because you're in novels. You never, you don't ever care about how long a chapter is or how long a book is. Yeah. Um, both comics, it, comics are much more like screenplays, but even more so because you have whatever, you know, 22 pages, let's say, and you really have to be careful about what's on a page, what's on a page turn, what's on a spread. And so there's a Tetris like quality that would never would enter your mind as a novelist. So it's a nice, it's a nice change of pace for me yeah. and I wanted to do those between novels. Yeah. Um, but no, it, it wasn't difficult for me um, to make that uh, jump. And I, and I think if you were writing an issue by issue, there would be more of a, uh, a synergy between artist and, and, and writer, because you would write an issue, you would see what they were doing and you might adapt your work that way. So yeah. I, I kind of understand that. And that's an interesting thought um but you know i'm, I'm turning in complete works yeah. so it, it really after that it's a matter of the artist just doing their thing and then you know me commenting on it along with the editor and stuff yeah um but it, it is a, a wonderful experience but it's way it's way more like immediately gratifying to do mm -hmm. comics because when you write a book you write a book the editor maybe reads it a year and a half later it comes out um where comics are so fast yeah yeah you know i write i turn in all the comics as soon as the artist is like you know done with issue one that issue is coming out like yeah. it's so fast <laughs> it's real um, and plus you, you i i tend to like it better you know like yeah. when you're writing a novel you're so lost in the novel and novels take so much longer than comics um writing comics anyway mm -hmm. um that you when the book comes out, I mean, the last thing I want to do is look at the book and I, I have no real good sense of if it's any good or not. Where it's comics, it's much more fun because you're writing something and then you are seeing the art and it's like adding half of the impact, you yeah. know, like suddenly you're seeing it through someone else's eyes and that's way more fun. And I end up liking the characters of my, I, I feel closer to my comic characters than I do my novel characters, I think because someone is then showing me what they look like. And now yeah. that they suddenly have a face, I, they, there's something about that that makes me um, feel closer to them. Yeah. So yeah. that the artist really does uh, a huge service just to me. Like yeah. I feel like I like the projects better once the artists are involved. Yeah. And how much influence, like, so do you, are you telling the artists, like let's take Nessa for example in Trojan. Mm -hmm. Um, are you kind of sharing with the artist what you think Nessa should look like, or are you just sharing the story and then the artist is coming to you and say, this is what I think she would look like based upon what you've written? Like how much it, back and know, forth is there on that? It really depends on the project and the, and yeah. the publisher. Okay. I think for, for, um, Trojan, it was a sense of, I would describe the character, um, not too specifically, like mm -hmm. I might say that 
you know, if I'm describing Dirk, I might say that I would give his age. Yeah. Say he's, if it's important what he's wearing, I'll say it, you know, that uh, in his case, he kind of looks a little bit like a, a, a junkie. He looks a little gaunt and strung out. And so I'll say those things. Yeah. yeah. Um, but for AWA, they, if I'm remembering, certainly for year zero, and I think yeah. for Trojan, um, they actually requested um, like comps. Like so if, if you can send us pictures of, of people who look sort of like, this and so um i know i did at least some of that like sending them finding going in there and finding people that i thought had a, the right kind of look mm -hmm. um and then sending those and the artist then um generally would use those they you know, they would make it their own but um would use those as a starting point anyway yeah that's pretty awesome that's pretty awesome. And then once you see, uh, you know, all the designs from the artist, is there much back and forth or whatever the artist brings forth, you're pretty happy with? There's not a ton of back and forth. I mean, yeah. the, the I, I haven't done that many comics, but the art, the art has always been, you know, just incredible. And I haven't, I, I, I mean, every issue, there's always a few little things like. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, either I or the editor will, will say, let's make sure we can see, that this person has a tattoo here because it's going to be important in issue yeah. four. Little things like that. Um, yeah. Let's let's change the expression slightly here or whatever. Yeah. But generally, you know, they they needed very little instruction. They always seem to nail it so far. Yeah. That's so cool. I, I love that back and forth between the writer and the artist. I don't think people realize when you are writing a comic book how important that relationship is at least having a, an artist that understands your writing yes. style. Um, that way they can enhance the writing through the visual. And I, I think when, when it's done well, right, then you get something pretty incredible. And I, I really think Trojan is a good example. You're zero too, but I, Trojan was the one that really, mm -hmm. I was like, wow, this is really well put together. And the art yeah. was incredible. My sense is that uh, once you've chosen the right artist, things are going to go pretty well. I, I think if you were to choose the wrong artist, yeah. um, you're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what you can, I mean, if you're, if you, if you have to start getting in there and I say you, I mean like me, but mostly the editor and micromanaging and, and yeah. you're really in a lot of trouble yeah. um, just from a time standpoint. Mm -hmm. So it's, and I don't know, a I don't know a ton of um, comic artists. So I've yeah. really been, reliant on the publisher to find the right person and generally they've done a tremendous job with that yeah that's awesome yeah I, I tell you as a as a big fan of comic books you, you once in a while you'll read one and then you realize the the artist and the the writer might not have been on the same page mm -hmm. at yeah. least a portion of it and you know right away because the art is telling something different than the writing was telling um and so yeah you you really learn to appreciate as a fan of comic books when those two come together because, yeah. uh, boy, the story really pops when that happens. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So then we get into year zero. I mean, after, you know, the influences of George Romero, the, the zombie worlds that he really created, then you get into year zero. I mean, how fun was that to be able to do something like that? I mean, it seems like it's right up your alley. 
Yeah, I mean, it was almost at first. I thought it was too much up my alley. Yeah, I had just, I had just put out the Living Dead, which yeah. is a gigantic tome. Uh, yeah. And I, the last thing I ever expected was to do zombies really ever again. <laughs> Romero had sort of intended that book to be the final word, and that's yeah. what I, I tried to do. Um, and then, but so when Axel from ALA, you know, called me, and he basically just cold called me and said, "Hey, I, I really like Living Dead." thinking about doing a prequel arc to um, year zero. I was, I was privately kind of dubious about it. Like I didn't, yeah. I wasn't sure that was really something I wanted to get into again. Um, but he sent me the Benjamin Percy mm-hmm. um, volume one or two, and I just really loved it. Um, yeah. It was, it was just my kind of I, I, story. I love the simplicity of the, the, um, the sort of, uh, set up the way it's arranged that's just like four stories that intercut but they don't interact yeah it was yeah. so clean and simple and understandable yeah um that that really appealed to me having come off of something that was extremely complicated and interconnected i like the simplicity of it mm-hmm. and i also in the living dead was by design uh really about america yeah and i like the idea of i saw almost years there was a chance to do the international version yeah. you know and the the whole year zero project is very romero like there's it's the the zombies are there's nothing special mm-hmm. about them there's nothing they have no additional abilities they don't yeah. shoot lasers or fly or anything <laughs> just like your standard romero zombies yeah so i really responded to that and i you know what i actually wanted to do was something almost kind of a covid tale where it was really uh, the very first inklings of there being something wrong. So yeah. you know, Ben Ben Percy was hitting at the ground is there's a zombie epidemic and here's how people are dealing with it. This was much, much more, we're starting to, to see something's wrong very much as the early days of COVID, the very early days of COVID. Yeah. Uh, so that was really appealing to me to just more more writing about people than writing zombie stories just writing about how they were picking up signals and suggestions and hints that there was something wrong and then how everyone uh tried to address it or failed to address it yeah yeah no i i did pick up on that as well and i really enjoyed that i think we had north korea we had russia right and then we had uh the airplane and all the stewardess. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, and they're starting to, like you said, they're starting to see signs and some people are ignoring the signs because they almost don't want to believe that something crazy is about to happen. And others are like, you better, we better watch this, man. This is about to get really nasty. So yeah, no, I, I thought those four separate stories were just built out perfectly. And then you get this, this uh, viewpoint from different cultures in different places around the world on how each of them would have uh, responded to that in specifically North Korea, where they're under this regime where you don't have a lot of self-expression, right? So they have to be very careful in how they respond to this because, you know, if uh, leadership looks at that and says, you know, that response is against how we want things done, not Mm -hmm. only do you have this zombie apocalypse about to happen, which could kill you, you also have your leaders that could kill you too for responding the wrong way. I I just thought there was so many different webs that were going into that story that really helped to develop it. And that's a much different experience than someone growing up in the United States. Right. Yeah. It was, 
that yeah you've exactly said it right it, that is what it was all about finding out seeing how people were culturally allowed or not allowed yeah. to respond to it and um you know just what what belonging to one geographical area versus another how that affects or completely nullifies your ability or willingness or interest in doing anything about this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That was awesome. Well, then we get into Trojan Daniel, and this is the one that, you know, I started reading it. I was at my local comic book store and, and I saw it there issue one. And so I started talking to my, uh, the owner of my comic book store, Ambrose, and uh, he had just read it and he goes, you know what? I think this is going to be a crazy story. I don't know where they're going with this, um, mm -hmm. but it's worth a try. And I always try to pick up mainly independence and just try it. Yeah, yeah. If I like that first issue, I'll hang with it. And I was blown away by the art and the story. Um, kind of walk us into the story itself, how it came about, because sure. um, it, it's pretty amazing. Uh, well, you know, the sort of the backstory to it is... Mm -hmm. Just as a novelist, I'd always been really interested in the concept of snuff films and if they exist and why they would exist and who would right. watch. And I had been trying to develop a, a, an, a an idea for a novel for a long time, like decade or two. And these things tend to germinate in my head for for really long periods. And then one day suddenly I'll have the I'll come up with the thing that makes it all work. Uh, and I had never come up with that that thing for this for this process. Um, I had taken a lot of notes on a novel, but it, there certainly it was very realistic. There was nothing supernatural about it. Mm -hmm. um, and then after I turned in Year Zero, um, Axel, you know, he really liked it. He was like, "Let's do something else." And he just happened to mention a, a, a short list of things he was interested in. Um, mm -hmm. I think I just asked him, "It's like, what's on your kind of wish list?" Yeah. And he mentioned snuff films. Uh, and I said, well, that's crazy because I've been trying to do something on that for the longest time. So let me think about that. Yeah. And then immediately, almost immediately, like probably like 10 minutes later, uh, I had it figured out because there was something about thinking about it as a comic instead of a novel mm -hmm. that allowed my brain to open up the concept uh, to genre. And so I was like, well, wait, what if this doesn't take place with just, what if this isn't just a bleak, depressing story about humans doing terrible things to humans? Yeah. What if I allowed in some sort of uh, supernatural or science fiction or fantasy context? I'm not sure what. Mm -hmm. um, and it just came together immediately. I was like, well, yeah. what if, what if it's not people that are, that are putting in the stuff? What if it's uh, fantasy creatures? Yeah. And, what if it's you know mermaids and and um, yeah gnomes, gnomes and, and yeah, yeah and elves <laughs> and and minotaurs and and then the story quickly came together uh, from that you know like what if there's what if all these mythical creatures lived among us at one point mm -hmm. um, in this sort of alternate uh, reality and then were their specialness made us jealous and we essentially shunned them so now they're mm -hmm. uh they're living in you know they're, they're in hiding essentially living in little sort of, almost like homeless people living in little enclaves and villages where we can't find them mm -hmm. uh 
And because of that, we've sort of lost, they sort of represented hope to us and they're, they're exiting our lives, let everyone else sort of lose hope and society is sort of going down the drain even faster than it was. And there's someone online on the dark web who is finding these, what are called legends, these uh, mythological creatures and killing them. Mm -hmm. um, torturing them and killing them online for, you know, the rich and powerful to pay to watch. And it's a, it's a kind of a terrible, awful, ugly idea. Um, but there was a certain, it had a, incorporating a genre element gave it suddenly a certain kind of bounce um, that enlivened it just enough for it to suddenly make sense to me and see how I could really do something interesting and unique with it. Mm hmm And I, I like Dirk, too, because I'm not sure Dirk is really genuinely a good person, at least at the beginning. You don't have that sense, but there's something good in him. Yeah. And by you, by the time you get to, you know, issue four, you start to see him really come into his own and the impact that Nessa had had on him over those four issues to get him to that point where you realize that he really is a good person, certainly was going down a path of not a great person, but uh, that element of good was within him. And it kind of gives you hope because then you see all of us are kind of made up that same way, right? We all have these yeah. dark things that we're constantly hiding and maybe we don't do so well at hiding it. Um, and all of a sudden someone comes into your life and they have a huge impact on you and you realize there is that element of good there. It just needs to be drawn out. And sometimes you need yeah. some help from someone else to be able to do that. Right. Right. And I think it's important that they met in person. So, yeah. so Nessa to sort of back up for people who haven't read it. Um, she's essentially, uh, presents herself as a, a fairy. Like right. she looks like an ordinary person, but, um, shows Dirk her wings and she basically tracks down Dirk and Dirk is this sort of tour guide of the dark net. So he can, mm -hmm. he can kind of find whatever you need on the, the dark web. Um, but she finds him in person and sort of more or less blackmails him into letting, getting her in contact with the person who does, who kills and tortures legends because she wants to be killed and tortured because be, because she wants, she wants the money that would be gotten from finding her to help someone who's sick. So it's a very selfless, horrible thing she's asking for. Mm -hmm. And you, but Dirk, you know, he lives in this, scurvy little apartment and you know and part of his story is that it's very easy to do terrible things when you're just interacting through a screen yeah, yeah. it's much easier to click and then just turn away from your computer and not have to think about what happens but she contact she tracks him down in person and you know makes him take her to his apartment and show her the dark web and everything that's possible there and i i think having met her he, he has to come to terms with sort of the terrible things he's been not doing himself, but sort right. of a lot, not doing anything about either. Like yeah, exactly. as a tour guide, get, getting people access to terrible things, whether or not he watches them or not, he's, he's sort of part of the problem. Sure. Yeah. And she makes him uh, realize that. So he, he is really probably, a, you know, at the beginning of it, a pretty despicable character, but he does, yeah. sort of, he does at least start heading towards redemption near the end. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I found myself not liking him at all in issue one and in issue four. Kind of 
realizing that we're all to different extremes. We're all a little bit like dirt in, in yeah. a certain way, right? We, you go through your day and there's probably things that you see that maybe you shouldn't see and you should say something and not all the time, but I, I think we've all had that experience. And, and then yeah. you realize at the end, uh, if you get involved, you could, you could have an impact on someone else's life. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. 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 No, it was so enjoyable, man. I, and then you get into like the middle of it and then you realize how many of these legends are actually still around yet society has almost forgot about them outside of this dark web and these ultra wealthy people who are paying all this money to see these legends, um, get tortured. Um, you see society is kind of moved on and not for the better. I don't think mm -hmm. either. Um, yeah. but they're there <laughs> and they're not that far away. Right. I mean, if they really wanted to, they could find these legends yet. You could see society has shunned them to such an extent that they, have willingly forgotten about them, even though they know mm -hmm. they're still there. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, I mean, the, the, it's really the, the sort of parallels, uh, homeless people. Yeah. Um, so they're, that's how they're living. Yeah. And it's, it's, there's no one easier to ignore than someone who's living on the street because yeah. you, you sort of don't want to look at them. You don't want to be asked for money or whatever that it is. Uh, it's they're they're they represent someone that that doesn't get looked at, and yeah. so that's kind of how they're living, and so they are concealing their the you know they're able to sort of mask who they are yeah. you know like if if they're you know have a tail they they sort of are able to hide <laughs> that or, or whatever right right and that's how we've forgotten about them is that we just kind of don't aren't looking hard enough like they're right there. But, <laughs> right there <laughs> um so that was another element that really attracted me to the idea yeah yeah well i mean uh don't want to give it away i think people need to get uh these four issues i, I understand june 28th the trade is coming out so they'll mm -hmm. be able to pick up the trade and read the whole story we'll leave the end because the end is absolutely amazing um but uh yeah if you haven't read trojan yet you're missing out on one of i think one of the best uh four-part series of the year and with the trade coming out, it's going to make it a lot easier for you to get your hands on it. I think it's going to be on probably Amazon, Barnes and Noble, obviously AWA. You could get it almost anywhere. But uh, I think next Wednesday, right? We found out today. Yeah, yeah, June twenty eighth, whatever June day 28th. that is. Yeah, yeah. So then the last thing that I wanted to talk about, which is kind of new news, I think it's been out for a couple of weeks, but you have a new novel coming out, Whalefall, um, in August, mm -hmm. correct? Yes. So yeah, it's a. Uh... I don't know when this interview is airing. Yes, but the it comes out August 8th. Yes. August 8th. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe what it's about? I know I read a little bit um, of right. a little synopsis, but maybe give us a little insight into uh, what Wellfall is all about. Yeah, I would be happy to. It's my favorite um, thing I've ever done. Uh, oh, wow. It's it's a survival thriller, sort of. Uh -huh. It's, it's a, a story about a scuba diver who is swallowed by a sperm whale and has one hour of air to try to get out. Oh, <laughs> um, And it's, I wrote it in close, very close consultation with a, a bevy of whale experts and diving mm. experts. So it's entirely scientifically accurate. Like wow. everything has been checked and double checked. Um, <laughs> probably no one in history has actually ever been swallowed by a whale, but um, it could in theory happen. 
it was the right kind of person in the right situation, the right whale. Uh, and so it's, it's just incredible. I'm not saying that, you know, my work is incredible, but like what the scientists were, the, the directions they were able to lead me, you know, cause I didn't know anything about whales. Yeah. Yeah. So I spent two or three months at the beginning of the process, just interviewing these scientists and trying to figure out what was even possible. Yeah. Could you be swallowed by a whale? What would be in a whale stomach? What is it like inside the whale stomach? Um, what's, what else is in there? Yeah. You know, cause this diver has only has what's inside the whales as tools to try to get out. Um, and it was just such a, a wild journey um, for me as, and then, then for the character to have this sort of list of things you could attempt to do to get out of just the worst place in the world uh, <laughs> because a whale stomach is like, like being in a elastic uh, sleeping bag. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, and also whales, sperm whales don't chew with their mouth. They chew with their stomach. And so you're getting smashed by the stomach. And if you move into the second stomach, it's just filled with acid to dissolve all the squid that it eats. So it's, it's really like you're in hell. Um, I, I think what's, why the book has picked up such steam um, in early reviewers is that it's you have a certain expectation hearing all that, that it's going to be mm -hmm. just this nonstop intense thriller. And it sort of is that, but it's also very moving um, mm -hmm. because really the, the diver was out looking for the bones of his father. His father was estranged from him. They didn't have a good relationship and had, had, was dying uh, and decided to throw himself off a boat. Uh, and so this, the son who had never, who had never come to his bedside when he was sick or anything decides to make amends with his family. He's going to try to find his dad's bones. Mm. And it's during that process that he gets swallowed by the sperm whale. And then the stomach, you know, injured and under the effects of the methane that's inside the whale stomach starts hallucinating that the whale is his father. The whale, his father was somehow absorbed by the whale and he begins talking to the whale and the his father slash the whale you know it, when they were when the, the diver was young his dad who was a, a great man of the sea had given him all this knowledge about survival in the in the ocean and whales and he rejected all of it he wasn't interested now he's has to try to remember those lessons wow. uh, to try to get out uh so it's also a very i think a moving father and son story Wow. Wow. And how long was the process of writing Wellfall? How long have you been working on that? Um, it, it, like I said, it was front loaded by a lot of research, mm -hmm. you know, just uh, interviews and stuff that took two or three months. The actual writing was probably something like five months. Oh, wow. Is that about average, Daniel, as you're writing a novel about six to eight months to get a novel done? It's, it's average. I've written novels in three months. Um, if it's really long novel, like the living dead, that might take, mm -hmm. um, much longer, might take mm -hmm. a, a year or so. Mm -hmm. Um, this was, this was a little long. It's not a very long novel. It mm -hmm. took a little longer than most novels this size because there was so much science involved. Yeah. So I was constantly having to stop and talk to the, whale scientists and diving experts try to make sure that's so cool man sense, you know <laughs> where did you go uh to meet these scientists was it close to home or did you have to do some travel to meet some of these folks uh it 
it's it's both it's um the the book i came up with the book in in 2020 so we're in the thick of COVID. so um almost that's where the story started in 2020 that's what that's when i came up with the story oh wow okay yeah i couldn't really visit anyone yeah Uh, (laughs) that wasn't happening yeah yeah so all that early research anyway was done through phone calls and zooms and all sorts of stuff like that um and then later on, although I still have never met these well experts, we, we, we've talked a million times. Yeah. Um, but I did eventually, you know, go out to Monastery Beach, which is this beach near Monterey, California, where the book is set. Yeah. And I had a, a professional diver do the actual dive that the character does in the, in the book and videotape the whole thing, like from like a dive helmet. How so cool. I, had a full, I had a full record of the actual dive leading up yeah. to this following. Um. I learned to scuba dive, which was not something I was looking forward to because I'm not a water person at all. <laughs> um, so I did, <clears throat> I did all the diligent things that one needs to do to make sure that they're being accurate. Yeah, that's a pretty cool process, though. Definitely yeah, memorable, I mean, it was, right? <laughs> it was very memorable. I'll yeah. never have another experience like it. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. So this comes out August. I mean, this is going to be exciting. Um, I mean, I'm I'm seeing all kinds of news about it already. Maybe because yeah. I, I, I typed in your name into Google. Now, all of a sudden, Will Fall is uh, jumping on the pages of my Google, yeah. time, which is awesome. But uh, I can't yeah. wait. I've already pre-ordered it on Amazon. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank I you. can't I... wait for it to come in. It sounds amazing. Yeah, I don't know. I You know, people are flipping out about it. I, you know, it's like <laughs> maybe my 21st book, and I've never experienced anything like it. I, I think it. I think it has to do with the fact that, you know, there's something very primal and even primordial about this idea of being swallowed by a whale. Obviously it's in the Bible. Sure, it's yeah, in various yeah. other religion and cultures, myth and lore. Yeah. And it triggers something in our brain. I think that thinks back to that time when we were an animal that was hunted. Yeah. Uh, and I think we have this primordial fear and fascination with being uh, devoured, being eaten. <laughs> uh, so there's something about the premise of the book that, that just, flips a switch in people's brain that yeah. makes them immediately fascinated by it. I mean, that's how what happened with me when I came up with it. Like I, one night I had the idea and then I was obsessed ever since. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I, one of the things that I think about, right. You, I think we've all watched national geographic. I, I love watching those shows where, you know, they're maybe they're following gorillas or something like that, but they have them on whales too. And I've watched all of those and they're so fascinating and you think, you know, a lot about it yet in reality, everything that happens in the ocean, there's, it's one of the, the one things on earth that actually we don't know a lot about. Right. So we we know enough to kind of scratch the surface and to kind of get your lips wet, you know, per se. but there's still so many unknowns. So you could still take a story like that, write a novel about it. And you want to dig in because there's a lot of unknowns about that whole world underneath the sea and how big a sperm whale could actually get. And, and yeah. the, the, I don't know, the potential of something like this actually happening is there. So yeah. that also has a little intrigue. I, I think there's a lot of really cool things that kind of point to why this is going to be a pretty awesome novel. Yeah, it, it's um, yeah, I think all that is correct. The, we it's often said, and it's true that we know way more about Mars than we know the ocean. Like we, crazy. I can't remember what the current stat is, but it's something like 
10% of the ocean has been explored or something like yeah. that. So we don't know anything about what, what is going on down there. Yeah. And right off the right off Monterey, California, where the book takes place, there's mm-hmm. uh, you know, you could swim out for about 20 or 30 minutes, and then there's essentially hidden beneath the ocean something called Monterey Canyon, which is bigger than the Grand Canyon. Wow. So it's just this massive, massive hole that goes downward and that's where sperm whales live and feed and that's where all the world's most bizarre creatures are down there the ones who don't need light to live yeah and crazy so they're you know and my whale scientists although the book is you know as accurate as humanly possible they would occasionally tell me that you know a lot of this is our best guesses like we're able to dissect whales only when they they beach and we have like, you know, 24 hours to try to study them. And then the bodies have to be taken away. Yeah. So there are a lot of uncertainties about sperm whales, especially who are extremely mysterious. Uh, so they always, they always try to come for me and say, you have a little bit of leeway because we're not a hundred percent sure about anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's kind of cool though. I like yeah. that leeway. I like that leeway. <laughs> that yeah. Really, uh, make a lot of plots. Uh, pretty cool. I think. Yeah, yeah, it was it was nice to hear. Um, and again, I, I tried to stick to the the sciences um, at a hundred percent of the time, but there always was a little bit of um, more more to them saying to me that you know we can't guarantee anything because <laughs> yeah. we, we can't study someone else as we would like to. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, I can't wait. August or yeah. August 8th, I believe, is the launch date of it. Are you going to be doing some touring um, for the book? Or yeah, a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the tour schedule, it's fixed, but it's not public yet. But it sh- I would think that it, it'll be out in a, in a, you know, late, late June, early July. Um, I'll okay. make sorts of stops uh, yeah. in the early August. Nice. Uh, Mid-August time. Very cool. Yeah, I can't wait to get that uh, schedule out for everybody who wants to, to meet you in person, have you sign their book. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, bring your bring your uh, your zeros and trojans, and I'll say yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, after the novel, what else is going on with Daniel? Um, anything else that you're working on that you could share or you can't share yet? Are you working on another comic right now? I'm looking to my right here because that's where kind of my list of projects are. Um, yeah, I'm in the middle of a middle grade series called Graveyard Girls. That's ongoing. Nice. Um, I've got a. I recently finished a sort of sci-fi horror novel um, that I've got no news I can share on that. Yeah. Um, I've got uh, another big collaboration project that's coming out late next year, which nice. um, again, almost none of this stuff is really officially announced. Right. And right. I have a full graphic novel that's done that's being drawn right now. Oh, okay. And, and again, it's not announced, so I can't talk yeah. about that either, but a lot um, of stuff going on though. Plenty of stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then sci-fi. What, have you done anything? Oh, I guess Trojan's a little sci-fi, but um, have you I wrote a, just more like outer space, like that type of thing? Yeah, I wrote a book okay. called Bent Heavens that's, that's, that's borders on sci-fi in the yeah. sense that it is about these two people who accidentally trap an alien, you know, uh-huh. in an animal trap. Uh, so that, there, that has a little bit of sci-fi, but this is a full-on you know, on a spaceship. Type. Oh, wow creating a whole new world type of sci-fi. So a totally different uh, thing for me. How cool is that just to do something a little bit different? Well, that's what I tried to do with everything. Like that's yeah, why I'm yeah. moving around from 
a hard case crime book to living dead to Trojan Mm -hmm. to, um, to sci-fi. Like I really try to, to kids books. I mean, I try to, it keeps me awake, I think to keep switching genres and approaches. Um, so that's really important to me. It's, 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 I think it it can be occasionally difficult for readers because they don't know what the hell I'm going to do. And, and, you know, uh, some readers may like it all, but some may only like some of them because I'm switching around so often. So I think it's, it can, it can be a little bewildering to to follow me, but it's the only way I can stay uh, fully vibrant, I think. And just, just as a creator, just to stay awake and to keep surprising myself. The last thing I, if I just keep writing the same type of book in the same type of genre, I'm just going to burn out. Yeah. Yeah. But horror is still your go-to, you think? Oh, yeah. 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 That's, yeah, for sure. that, I, mean, I mean, almost virtually everything I've done has at least one foot in horror, if, yeah. not, <laughs> if not both. So yeah. there's even my stuff, like, I've done a few things that, you know, you really couldn't call horror. Even that is filled with horrifying things, I think. Yeah. So that, that I'll always be at least tangentially doing horror, I think. <laughs> well, that's awesome, Daniel, man. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and all the stuff that you're working on. Big fan of your work, Daniel. I think there's a lot of us out there that really enjoy everything that you're doing. Um, Trojan was uh, a really nice surprise for me, to be quite honest. I'm always looking at indie comics, trying to find that next comic that could... Like, I love superheroes, right? But you can only take so much superheroes. You want to have stories that kind of cause you to to maybe think a little bit more um and trojan did that right it, it, there's a lot in trojan that uh caused you to reflect a little bit on yeah. how you treat other people and and society as a whole and where we're at as a not just a country i think everywhere you go right. there, there's a little bit of an element where you're like how do we get to this point and then you realize how quickly it could happen if you're not paying attention and, and trojan i thought brought a lot of that there's a little bit of horror a little bit of fantasy a little bit of everything like you mentioned but it also makes you think um, mm-hmm. and, and you certainly end this book um, or this series wanting to be better than you, you are and, right, uh, right. everything about Trojan. I really enjoyed. So I really mean it. I thought that was an amazing comic and one of the best reads of the year for sure. So far. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Daniel, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on. I'm hoping we could do this again, maybe yeah. after will fall or maybe when this sci-fi, uh, Mm-hmm. Um, thing that you're working on comes out. We could talk more about that. I'm super excited about that. I'm a, I'm a big sci-fi guy. I love Green Lantern. So I'm hoping there's something that I can relate to in this and that sure. I'll jump all over, man. Probably. Yeah, just be in touch. And I'm sure we can pull it off. <laughs> right on, Daniel. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're a busy man. Appreciate you coming on and we wish you the very best. Thank you. You too. All right, Daniel. Have a good one.